this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm shriram lakshman the hindu's us correspondent and host for today's conversation Last Wednesday, following a rally held by US President Donald Trump in Washington DC, a large group of his supporters marched towards the US Capitol, breaking through security barricades, climbing scaffolding, smashing windows and entering the building, the seat of American democracy. The rioters sought to disrupt the work of lawmakers who were engaged in the final certification of Democrat Joe Biden as the winner of the presidential election. The process was interrupted as senators and members of Congress had to be shifted to a secure location. Several rooms were vandalized and the resulting violence killed at least 5 people. After the rioters left the building, the certification continued and was completed. Joe Biden will now be sworn in as the next president of the United States on January 20th. Democrats are asking Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th amendment and remove President Trump from office. Failing this, they plan to impeach the president. To discuss this and more, we are joined by presidential historian Jeffrey A. Engel. Professor Engel is the founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. He has a background in history, of course, but also international relations and security studies. He has authored or edited 12 books on American foreign policy and is a frequent media contributor whose appearances on international and American channels include the BBC, National Public Radio, CNN, and Fox News. Professor Engel, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to talk to you. Uh, we're very excited to discuss what's been a tumultuous and very um, unusual week in American history. Um, I'd like to start with what uh, what some historians have said about last Wednesday. They've compared the violence that happened in uh at the capitol last wednesday to violence that happened in the wake of the reconstruction where the majority group tried taking over the democratic machinery by force when things looked like they were not going their way what historical parallels can you draw uh to last week's storming of the capitol you know actually the historical parallel i'm i've been playing with is the boston massacre uh, uh which is of course uh from the american revolution in 1775 uh british troops opened fire on um, actually i think it was earlier in 75 74 british troops opened fire on american protesters who frankly were being violent who were throwing snowballs and rocks and whatnot at them and the significance was not that several people died the significance was that that moment crystallized the break for both people on both sides of the atlantic crystallized that we had reached a moment of genuine violence uh that requires new attitudes and new assessments and so i really think that the attack on the capital more than reconstruction which of course reconstruction was essentially the broad process of how to reintegrate the south into the country after the civil war and in many ways reconstruction was uh, essentially fought an, an effort by southerners to control their own domestic lands if you will to control their own social hierarchy uh and pushing back against civil rights pushing back against equal rights for for african americans in particular but that didn't happen in the capital 
And so the fact that we have violence inside the U.S. Capitol is actually not unprecedented. There's been numerous occasions where we've had congressmen uh, and senators beat each other up uh, on the floor, uh, pull guns, et cetera. Uh, this is still America. But uh, we've never seen anything like uh, thousands upon thousands of people trying to not just attack attack a branch of government, but to disrupt the constitutionally mandated democratic process. This really was a seditious insurgency. There's really no other way to describe it. So it's a moment of reckoning for the country, I guess, and there's going to be a before and an after. Is that correct? I think so, because I don't think anything really has changed uh, since last Wednesday, except people's um, realization that a line has been crossed. Uh, you know, President Trump has been saying seditious things for weeks and weeks now, uh, but there wasn't any follow on. And President Trump says, frankly, lots of things which never come true. In fact, President Trump is rarely says things that are true, to be honest. Uh, and what we saw last Wednesday was the general public for the first time see with their own eyes the consequences to the extent that it's possible to get into the president's mind do you think he was actually expecting this to happen you know to the extent that it's possible to get in president trump's mind i actually i, I let me say again i have no idea what's going on in the president's mind but it does seem that he had become so delusional in believing his own lies that he thought that this group going to the Capitol, I don't know that he necessarily thought that they were going to break in, though press reports suggest that he was actually quite pleased while watching that on TV. Uh, but I do think that he was expecting this show of force, show of potential violence to stop the vote uh, that would, of course, give Joe Biden the presidency. Um, I find that delusional. That, that would have happened. But uh, again, I'm not within President Trump's Trump's mind. And I think what that tells us is uh, he is not only fabricating any number of conspiracy theories since November about the election, he's starting to believe them as well. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit, a bit about the inauguration, which is just a few days away. Uh, President Trump has said he is not going to attend the inauguration. And uh, the last time this happened, as far as I'm aware, is when uh, Andrew Johnson boycotted Grant's inauguration in 1869. Um, has this been considered by any other president in recent history? I, I don't believe so. This is actually, you know, an important symbolic moment in American history. We 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 pride ourselves, or used to, uh, on the peaceful transfer of power. And this is the moment that we show the world and show the American people and show pictures of one person handing power to another. So every president since 1869 has shown up at their successor's uh, inauguration, whether they like them or not. Now, remember, some of those some of those presidents handed things off to an ally or even to a vice president in the case of Reagan to George H.W. Bush. And some of those presidents and incoming presidents couldn't stand each other. Uh, the best example, I think, is 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt took over for Herbert Hoover in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, the two men couldn't, wouldn't talk to each other. They despised each other so much. Yet, they rode in the same car together to the Capitol. In fact, it was so cold, they actually rode underneath the same blanket with each other to stay warm. 
they wouldn't talk to each other, but they did know that both of them had to be respectful visually to the other to show the American people that this is the transfer of power. Frankly, it shows on the part of the outgoing presidents, especially those who've lost their elections, a remarkable sense of, not a remarkable sense, an appropriate sense of maturity. Uh, you know, I, I keep telling my daughter that there's a reason in your soccer games when you were in third grade that parents made you go across the field and shake the hand of the other team, whether you won or lost. That's how we learn that when the competition is over, we are all in this together. Uh, and I don't think President Trump ever learned that lesson about maturity. Um, do you think uh, Vice President Pence could fill that role and fill it adequately? Would protocol allow him to fill that role? And if he were to fill it, would it send as effective a message? No, I, I, I think this is something that the president does. Uh, you know, the vice president Pence will be there because, again, I think he's an adult. Uh, and I don't have to agree with anything that vice president Pence says or thinks or believes to have faith that he understands that we have constitutional duties, elected officials have constitutional duties that rise above our own personal feelings. And the handover of power is exactly one of those. So uh, unfortunately, uh, we're just not going to have that this time because we don't have a mature enough president. You know, uh, your comments uh, made me think there's been a shift in how uh, in the critics of Vice President Pence think of him over this last week. And uh, history is probably going to judge him much more kindly now. Would you agree? It's interesting. That it's an interesting thing, question to ask. And it's a one, I'm glad you asked it because uh, I, I suspect history will treat him kindly, but for an entirely unimpressive reason. That is to say, I have been amazed since last Wednesday how much praise the vice president has received for doing the bare minimum, uh, for doing what the Constitution requires. I mean, usually we think of uh, political courage as requiring some, some innovation, some insight, some willingness to break with, uh, if not tradition, then break with norms in order to clear a new political path. That's not what the vice president did. His role was ceremonial uh, and he conducted a ceremonial role. Um, doing what you're required to do, I think is not bravery. It's rarely praiseworthy, yet it shows how unusual a time we are in that simply doing the bare minimum uh, was able to get Vice President Pence praise and, as you said, probably a nicer critique from history. I guess some would say the bar is very low at the moment. Yeah, you know, uh, if I may, the comedian Chris Rock uh, has a whole soliloquy, a monologue on this point that you shouldn't get praise for doing the things you're supposed to do. You know, that uh, when you take care of your kids, don't seek praise for that. You're supposed to take care of your kids. You know, when you you know don't hit one of your coworkers, you don't get praise for that. You're supposed to do that. When you're the vice president, you're supposed to read out the votes from the electoral college without inter in intervention. Uh, this is not impressive as a job to me. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening this week. There seems to perhaps unsurprisingly be quite a bit of resistance from Senate Republicans to the idea of convicting uh, Trump if he is impeached by the House. Uh, but there's also an opportunity for 
Republicans here because the calculus has been so, so far, at least, has been that they need Trump because he comes with 70 plus million people. They want to stay politically relevant. But there's an opportunity here if he's convicted at the Senate trial to ensure that he doesn't run for public office again. And do you think some of them are thinking that they can be rid of that choice that they have to make between Trump and um, the Republican Party? You know, I, I think uh, I have, listen, I can't predict anything as well as anyone else, but I have not been impressed by the idea that President Trump was going to run again for president in four years. Uh, to be completely blunt, the actuarial tables suggest that he's probably not going to be physically able to do it. Or frankly, if you really believe the actuarial tables, uh, it's a, it, there's a not insignificant chance that he will not survive the next four years just because I'm not saying anything about him personally, just because of his lifestyle, because of his weight, because of his age, et cetera. So I have not been impressed that he's going to run again, but I do think it's clear that he's not going away uh, in terms of being a force within American politics, or at least a loud voice within American politics. So I don't know that senators are necessarily thinking that they need to impeach the president uh, in order to keep him from running, though I think there are some who are saying that. But I do think that what they want to do is impeach the president, uh, frankly, because he has attacked them. Uh, let's remember, the, the Constitution is set up to have three co-equal branches of government. And what we've actually just witnessed here is one co-equal branch violently attack, not just with words, but with actual deaths, violently attack members of another co-equal branch. Uh, I don't see any reason why the Constitution's architects wouldn't want the Congress to stand up on that point alone and say, we must defend our constitutional prerogative to show that we are co-equal, that we cannot be coerced by even the most despotic of commanders in chief. Right. Um, you talked about President Trump having a loud voice, right? Whether or not he runs for office again, that loud voice may be curtailed. It's been curtailed over the last few days because he's dependent on these um, tech giants, as he likes to call them, uh, for that loud voice. How do you see that playing out? That's a good question. I think one thing that we have seen over the last several days is a severe plummeting in the enthusiasm for President Trump's own news network, which he had been floating that idea quite broadly. Uh, there appears to be very little enthusiasm, as you can imagine, among sponsors to jump onto a brand new competitive network to say rival Fox News or something like that. I think that's gone away. Um, I, the bigger question in American society right now about his communication, I think is not actually necessarily about him, but about the fact that conservatives uh, in American society have for several generations have argued, I think, frankly, with no real evidence that the media, whatever that means, the broad media atmosphere of television, movies, the internet, et cetera, uh, are uh, anti-conservative. Right. And that the media, whatever, again, that means is trying to shut down conservative voices in violation of their first amendment rights. That's the argument that one is hearing wildly uh, from the right of the political spectrum, from President Trump supporters, now that he has been kicked off Facebook and Twitter, that this is a violation of his First Amendment rights, which is just complete poppycock, uh, because uh, the First Amendment says the government can't keep you from talking. The private company certainly can. 
And at least right now, Facebook and Twitter and others are private companies. And they've said, you know, we're not going to stop you from saying out loud the crazy things you want to say. We're just not going to give you a, a microphone for it. Uh, and so I have not seen anyone put in jail yet for vi a violation of their First Amendment rights for supporting President Trump. I have seen people removed from Twitter and Facebook for inciting violence and for threatening other people using their First Amendment rights. And I think there's a key distinction there between the private and the public that the American people are going to have to really wrestle with over the next generation, if not more. I'd like to uh, move to the Democrats. As, as we know, they're pursuing impeachment. Well, they're going to this week if, our, if, amendment, if the 25th Amendment isn't invoked. Uh, do you think this could backfire on them like it might have a year ago? Like they impeach the president if he doesn't get convicted by the Senate and then he portrays himself as a victim? Well, I, I, there's one thing in the world I can guarantee you. I said I couldn't predict the future, but I will put all my money and my mortgage and my kids' college fund on the following, that Donald Trump is going to portray himself as a victim. Uh, no matter what happens, Donald Trump is going to portray himself as a victim. Uh, I do think that what you raise, though, is a real problem for the Democrats, not least of which, because obviously there's only nine days left in the Trump presidency. Uh, so the average American may say, why bother? But more than that, the average American may say, we've got massive unemployment. We've got a pandemic raging. We have an, an economic, an economy that is on the rocks, uh, largely again, because of the pandemic. Why would legislators spend their time on this question is I think, frankly, a very legitimate question. Um, you know, I think that if you want to say that President Trump needs to be removed now because he is erratic, irrational, and dangerous, that's a reasonable argument. Uh, if you want to say that we need in the middle of this pandemic for the next Congress to spend their first agenda item being having a trial to impeach a former president, that's an important issue. I'm not sure that's number one in the American people's interests and hearts and pocketbooks. And remember, once the House sends articles of impeachment to the Senate, the Senate is required by con the Constitution to do nothing else but deal with that impeachment. And you can imagine why. I mean, it's a big issue. Uh, and so consequently, uh, there has been some discussion just in the last 24 hours that perhaps the House would impeach the president, but not formally deliver the articles of impeachment until maybe after 100 days of the Biden administration, thereby giving the Senate, now controlled by Democrats, right. the time to actually put forward President Biden's agenda. Right. And maybe some, some members of the Senate will also do some searching over those hundred days. Yeah, and and you know, if there's one thing that we I think can feel confident about is that uh, in this current political environment, uh, you and I have no idea what the situation is going to be if the vote is 109 days from now. Uh, you and I would have no idea what the actual political situation is going to be then, because frankly, you know, uh, one week ago, you and I having this conversation would not have been discussing the 25th Amendment or impeachment. Um, we would have been talking about how Democrats are trying to run out the clock on President Biden, or excuse me, uh, President Trump's last days. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question on um, what happens to the president once he demits office. 
former presidents are entitled to classified briefings. Um, unless he is impeached, is there a way to exclude Trump from getting these briefings? Many would argue that he could use them to his personal advantage and at a cost to the country or the world's security. I have to investigate the nuances of that uh, because my understanding is that presidents receive classified briefings, former presidents, as a courtesy um, because they're still important people and they still have information to provide. I don't know that it's offered by law. So I don't know that the incoming Biden administration would be required to give information to um, uh to an ex-president, but also let's remember a briefing is designed by the person doing the briefing. So uh, President Biden could say, sure, give ex-president Trump a briefing on the following things, which are not particularly important. Um, he doesn't have to brief the ex-president on everything that's on his agenda. This is an example. President Obama did not call former presidents uh, before the Osama bin Laden raid. Um, because that would be potentially exposing the raid to open publicity. Um, and the more people that know something, the more likely it is to get out. Sure. So uh, I don't think that we have to worry necessarily about President Trump um, illuminating any classified information that he acquires after he leaves the White House. I do think it's a genuine concern that he's going to re release classified information that he obtained while he was president. And the reason I say that is because he's done it numerous times, uh, taking information that he received in a top secret classified briefing and immediately turned around and told the public. Now, the law allows him to do that. The president can release any information he or she wants. They are actually the ultimate decider uh, of who gets to decide what's classified and what's not. That doesn't mean it's a good idea uh, to release classified information. Right. And once he exits office, he's no longer the president. So does he have that authority to release information in guard? You know, that that is a great legal question that I think <laughs> I don't know how we're going to unpack because uh, we are going to learn a lot uh, about what the legal rights of ex-presidents are uh, over the next several years. Uh, so, yes, you are absolutely right that the president ex-president releasing classified information could be subject to criminal prosecution by the ensuing administrations. Whether or not that's a good idea or whether or not the ex-president might tie things up in court by suggesting that former executive authority matters, these are all questions the lawyers are going to make a lot of money arguing over uh, over the next several years, I think. Right. So I wanted to ask you, abstracting from uh, the direction of the impact, positive, negative, and so forth, which president would you say comes closest, uh, really in terms of the magnitude of the impact that President Trump has had in recent years? I think Andrew Johnson uh, would be my guess now. Andrew Johnson, just to remind everyone, was president, uh, was vice president when Abraham Lincoln was was shot. Um, obviously, becomes the president in charge of initially reconstruction, reconciling North and South after the Civil War. And Andrew Johnson was um, arguably the nation's race most racist president. 
uh, he arguably was the one who was the biggest jerk. Um, now, uh, other presidents give him a, a run for his money on that one, but uh, uh, you know it's a conversation you don't want to be in. Uh, and President Johnson, who of course was impeached ultimately in the last months of his time in office, was impeached again largely because of the angry rhetoric employed attacking the Congress uh, and the fact that he was violating congressional will openly. Uh, and to a lesser extent, inciting violence. Now, there was not ever a moment such as we saw crystallized on January 6th, where protesters following President Johnson's lead marched on the Capitol. But he said some remarkably inflammatory things that were used as justification for his impeachment. So at this point, I, I think he's the closest analogy. So, um, Professor Engel, before um, we conclude, I'd like to ask you, given what's happening in the Republican Party or what seems to be happening, you know, people are torn between um, whether they stick with Trump or they stand up for, um, you know, will the real Republican Party please stand up? Um, do you think that there's going to be a third major political party forming in the next, in the near term? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I tell you, that that's what history suggests. Um, remember that one way to understand the entire Trump presidency and candidacy was as a civil war within the Republican Party, that Donald Trump ran against the Democratic Party, but also ran against traditional Republicans, the George W. Bush, Mitt Romney wings of the Republican Party. Uh, obviously, he was successful in controlling the party and then ultimately winning the presidency, but those people haven't gone away. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing is perhaps a moment, I think quite likely, a moment where the Republican Party, I think, as a brand, is going to continue moving forward. That doesn't mean everybody who's in the Republican Party is going to continue under that brand, which suggests, especially given that the people who are most antagonistic towards Trump are by and large towards the center of the political spectrum. And there is, of course a center wing of the Democratic Party as well, that it suggests that there is a moment, a right moment here for a coalescing of these two into a new political party. Now, before Democrats get very excited about that, I should point out that every previous time in American history, we've seen one party collapse. It takes the other party down with it uh, over the course of the next several election cycles, just because it com completely realigns the, the interest groups and the coalitions and the alliances within the, the broad electorate. So I think that there's a good chance that the Republican Party is in its death throes as we currently see it. I think Republicans will continue. I don't necessarily know that their party is going to continue as is currently formed. Right. It looks like Washington is in for uh, some very busy times over the next few days, months, and even years. Professor Engel, thank you so much for your time today. It's been very enlightening and uh, it was great talking to you and uh, good luck. Well, I enjoyed this conversation. Good, good luck to y'all. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.